Toronto native Don Brydup has molded his multi-dimensional career into much more than just a day job. To start, the Berkeley graduate has owned and operated a top-rated recording studio in Toronto for several years. He's involved in James Taylor and Chicago tribute bands that amazingly replicate the sound of both artists. He's a Grammy-winning composer for film and television. And finally, he's the leader of the band Monkey House, who has recently released their new album called Headquarters. With stellar musicianship and top-notch production qualities, this new effort by Monkey House is sure to impress. Inside MusicCast welcomes one of Toronto's best, Don Brydon. Hey, Don, thanks for joining us today. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. Hey, Don, when we first uh, learned about your music, we immediately thought that, uh, you know, we need to get down on Inside MusicCast and talk about, obviously, what we had heard of uh, is your band called Monkey House. And obviously, in the course of research, we found that uh, you have several layers of your musical lives. And uh, it's, it's Mon- Monkey House, for sure, your band, but you're also a co-studio owner uh, in a, a Toronto-based uh, music studio. You've, yeah. You're an author. You've, mm-hmm. You have played a couple of tribute bands that are amazing. And you're involved in a lot of myriad types of projects, even television. So why do you even spread yourself so thin? <laughs> well, you know, I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, on the phone last night, uh, uh, an orchestrator who um, is based in L.A., and he was uh, pointing out that in L.A. there are just so many uh, musicians and there's so much going on that everybody's a specialist, so you can sort of hang up your shingle and say, uh, you know, I'm an orchestrator and all I do is TV drama, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And you can actually make a go of it doing that. But in a, a smaller scene like Toronto, um, everybody kind of does everything. Right. Uh, so you end up, well, in my case, I've ended up being a TV composer, um, songwriter, arranger, keyboard player, uh, you know, copyist, producer, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, you you uh, kind of piece together a, a living, and as long as it's all music uh you're a happy camper. Mm-hmm. So, uh, would you consider them all your day job, or do you basically focus in on a certain portion of your of your life? And would that be the studio? If, if there was a larger portion of uh, what what holds down the fort, what would that be done? Well, I think if you looked at the ledger for the last five to ten years, you would have to call me a, a TV composer because that's hmm. uh, that's what's paying the bills more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I have a partner here uh, in Toronto who's a guitar player, Anthony Vandenberg, uh, who's also done a lot of big stuff in his day and used to be a staff writer at Warner Chapel. And uh, we got into writing for kids' shows, mostly um, animated series, mm-hmm. uh, starting, I guess, it's maybe 10 or 12 years ago now. And uh, it, it took off pretty quickly, and we had some good luck and and uh, wrote for a couple of shows that uh, went big internationally, and uh, we won an Emmy Award a few years ago for one of our themes. That's right. Yeah. So was that the show know, 16? Is that right? 16, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was on uh, Cartoon Network in the U.S. Well, let's go back to the, the start, I mean, the very beginning. And you were born in Toronto, right? Is that where you've lived all your life primarily? Yeah. I mean, um, I went to school. Uh, I did my undergraduate at uh, Queen's University, which is in Kingston, mm-hmm. uh, which is outside of Toronto. And then I went to Berkeley in Boston after that. So I did live in the U.S. Um, a little while mm-hmm. there. But yeah, basically been conducting my career out of 
Toronto ever since. Well, think back and, and tell us your first memory of knowing that you wanted to be in the music business. I mean, obviously, that might have come later in your teens or something, maybe into college or high school. But, but what, were, what are your first memories about, you know, like picking up your first instrument? Well, it's funny, you know, um, people assume because of what I ended up doing that I was um, your typical classically trained piano kid. Mm-hmm. And I started out being that, but um, apparently the teacher, who I guess sensed that I had some potential was driving me too hard to the point where I started hating piano lessons and actually quit and just said, oh, forget this, I just want to, you know, play road hockey and hang out with my friends. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, typical Canadian, I guess. And, um, then I think around the time that, um, piano started to be a cool thing again, you know, um, thanks to um, Elton John and Billy Joel and exactly, all the guys the in that era that were kind of the troubadour singer-songwriter piano guys. Sure. Um, I picked it up again by year and just sort of, you know, taught myself and was lifting songs off people's records. I remember specifically um, having Steely Dan records and dropping the needle on them and trying to, you know, figure out what the chord changes were for everything. Yeah. It's kind of hit and miss. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so that kind of music, basically pop music with some jazz vocabulary in it, always, mm-hmm. you know, really fizzed me right from the. I remember specifically hearing Reeling in the Years on my bike uh, the first time and, and, like, pulling over and, and you know, get listening to my transistor radio and going, okay, what the hell is this? I need to, <laughs> I need to hear more of this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I mean, to continue that, uh, I, I was in bands, actually, originally as a drummer, um, all through high school and writing songs, and by the time I got to university, I was, you know, headed this way. Yeah. So whose idea was it for you to uh, to head towards Berkeley, since you had sort of, uh, in a, partially, uh, your talent was, you know, self-taught or whatever, when did you finally uh, start searching, and who pointed you towards Berkeley? Well, it's, you know... <laughs> It's a good story, actually. Everyone has their uh, their mentors and their people who uh, give them a little nudge in the right direction at the right time. And um, I had done an English degree, uh, and I was coming to the end of that, and um, the university was asking me back to do my master's, and I was sort of on the precipice of becoming a lifetime academic. And a friend-slash-professor of mine who had taught me orchestration and arranging and a couple other things um, over the previous couple of years said, do you really want to do this? You know, and maybe he's speaking from experience because he said, you know, do you want to be that guy with chalk dust on your jacket and, you know, uh, suede patches on, the, on your uh, tweed jacket? <laughs> you know, just kind of living in a college town for the rest of your life where you went to school. And I said, well... You know, he's not making it sound that good, no. <laughs> and he said, have you thought about applying to any music schools? And I hadn't yet at that point. And so he uh, sat down with me and got my demo together and my materials and, and uh, printed up uh, some of the scores I'd done and helped me to apply to not just Berkeley, but um, Eastman and um, North Texas mm-hmm. and... South Florida, you know, anywhere that had sort of a good 
I guess, commercially oriented or jazz oriented uh, exactly. right. program. And uh, Berkeley was the one that came through with a whole bunch of money and wanted me to, to come down. I got a full scholarship to go there. So, you know, as soon as that happened, I basically made a left turn and said, okay, mom, dad, sorry, I'm not going to be a Shakespearean uh, expert. I'm going to be a keyboard player. <laughs> you know, we we know obviously you're you're a big Steely Dan fan. You've already mentioned them once in our interview so far, and I'm sure we're going to mention them a lot <laughs> as this interview goes on. But but uh, besides Steely Dan, uh, what bands you know during that time? You, you, I think you also mentioned Billy Joel and uh, Elton John. But what other bands laid a major foundation for you that really kind of honed in on your style or developed what you do? Yeah, good question. I mean, you know, it, it sort of morphs a lot over the years, but I, I think what um, what they all had in common was um, strong sense of melody and harmony and uh, making records with really great musicianship. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think when I was a teenager, I was fortunate that the doors were still open to um, a lot of different kinds of music kind of overlapping at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in high school, I was into everything from uh, prog rock, you know, um, sure. Yes and Genesis and yep. Crimson and all that whole axis of stuff. But then also, you know, really American-sounding stuff like Steely Dan and the Doobies and yeah. Little Feet. And then singer-songwriter stuff as well, like uh, uh, Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell, James Taylor. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, so... And then once I became more of a, uh, an instrumentalist, a player, you know, getting close to adulthood, I guess I got into Matheny and I got into uh, Weather Report and Yellow Jackets, who were just a new band then. Yeah, um, yeah I got inspiration from all that stuff. And then once you end up at a place like Berkeley, like the student body at that school is unbelievably international, so you you know, you're sitting there in all your first year classes and there's a guy from Sweden, there's a guy from South Africa, and there's a guy from, you know, Japan and Australia, and, and you, you start to cross-pollinate with all these people who grew up in different traditions. It's pretty, uh, it's like a crash course in world music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, I'm sort of glad that you're mentioning that because I don't think we've, of all of our guests that have attended Berkeley in the past, uh, you know, we've never really asked that question about absorbing the international feel and uh, just the vibe of what every, every uh, you know, every type of genre throughout the world, you know, once it all intersects at Berkeley, how it rubs off in you and how it can really change your whole musical approach, right? Yeah, I mean, because you, I mean, we're all the products of our influences, and they tend to be regional, and they tend to, you know, come from your own country, or in my case, continent, you know? Yeah. And so, um, you know, just one example that occurs to me is, I was in first year there with a, a couple of brothers from Athens, not Athens, GA, I'm talking about Athens, Greece, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who uh, had come over to... Um, take the music production program there and basically go back to Athens and uh, I guess they had some backers and they were going to open a big studio there. And, um, you know, that's these are just the people, you know, you run across in your first week and it's not like everyone's on some kind of missionary quest to um, educate all their classmates about their own uh, indigenous stuff, but it just 
organically, you know, comes into a conversation or comes into a jam session. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of Greek guys who are used to playing in 7 8 and 9 8 and 13 8. And, uh, you know, you start to bounce ideas around with these people. And, and uh, I, I guess your, your palette gets bigger really quickly. Right. Yeah. So when did you, uh, after you finishing Berkeley, did you hang out in the States and work a little bit or did you head back home and what was the next step for you? Um, no, I, I did head uh, back home. Mm-hmm. I, I had thought about doing graduate work in New York, but by that point I'd been in school for, let me think now, <laughs> we still had grade 13 in Ontario at that time, so mm-hmm. gone through grade 13 and four years of university and then Berkeley, and I was thinking, well, you know, do I want to be in school the rest of my life or actually <laughs> get down and get into it and get dirty a bit? And, you know, because I grew up here, I still had lots of contacts and people I'd been in bands with. And so I basically hit the ground running and, and got got back from Berkeley and just immediately started doing gigs and sessions. You know. Well, tell us about when you established uh, your studio, DNA Music Productions. Well, that um, actually goes back, uh, the guy I'm partners with, uh, Anthony, uh, we go back to the 80s, and uh, we always say we're, the, uh, we're both the eldest of three uh, boys in our families, and so it took us uh, until we were in our 40s to actually you relinquish our control freak <laughs> and, and, you know, be able to collaborate. But when we did, we just ran into each other at a... Um, kind of a music business social thing and we're asking each other what we were up to and got caught up and right then uh, he had just been offered believe it or not a music gig where he was going to compose all the background music for a Garfield Christmas pageant you know where they they show up at theaters and uh you know, they're, they're fuzzy animals dressed up like Garfield. <laughs> and okay. they're all kind of, you know, the mouths in the costume don't really move and they're just kind of dancing around. Right. <laughs> that Garfield. I, I said, you know, you know, when you're freelance, you don't say no to anything. <laughs> no, you don't. So, yeah. is, is it a gig? Okay. <laughs> it's officially and a gig. So we had such a riot uh, writing that music and, the, you know, they, had, they ended up loving it and... Uh, we said, well, why don't we put our heads together and we'll see if we can um, drum up some TV work. And uh, I guess it was meant to be because one of the first things we pitched on was that show 16, which went almost 100 episodes and was you know, playing in 30 countries. It was Holy playing daily in the U.S. and Canada for years. So we, we ended up getting established because of that and also earning a lot of money because you get, you know, you get royalties flowing through from all over the world on a show like that. And so we, mm-hmm. we just stuck to it and we've pitched on, you know, hundreds of things over the years and done maybe another, I guess, 10 or 12 shows, series, mm-hmm. and two of them are still going now. So Very cool. I've got a question. In regarding, uh, you know, writing music for animated series or, or, you know, for children, that type of thing, what's your approach? I mean, what's your totally different, uh, do you have a totally different mindset? I mean, what's the key... You know, uh, how do you have to think when you're thinking about, you know, children's shows? Yeah, well, it's a good question. I mean, 16 was a good way to start because you weren't plunged right into the depths of trying to, uh, you know, write something that five-year-olds would like because Mm -hmm. that show was more like designed to be kind of like an animated sitcom that 
teenagers would be into. Um, the, the idea being that it's a group of friends and they're all 16 and they all work at the same mall. Mm-hmm. So we ended up doing a lot of stuff that was meant to sound like, you know, contemporary pop stuff. And actually, one of the secrets of us uh, doing well on it financially was the fact that it, because it took place in a mall, they were almost always in a store where there was music playing. So in a half-hour episode of the show, there might be 20 minutes of music mm-hmm. wow. um, playing. So Sure. That's a lot. That went well. But, I mean, the, basically, um, the, the skill in writing for cartoons, and we've done a ton of it now, is just having that kind of needle-drop mentality where, you know, if they go into a chase scene, you've got to, suddenly you're doing a knockoff of the Mod Squad or something that lasts for <laughs> right. 18 seconds, and then, yeah. uh, you know, they crash through a wall, and they're, you know, they're in the big tent, and, and clowns are running around, and you're into uh, Calliope circus music, and then... You know, if you don't like the music that's playing, just wait five seconds yeah. and it's going to be a whole other style. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In fact, um, Sidekick, which is a, a show that, uh, yeah, it's also on in the U.S. right now. It's on um, either Cartoon or Nickelodeon. Uh, their whole concept of music, and, and it's, a, it's a bit wacky. It's kind of got a little Ren and Stimpy mm-hmm. spirit to it. Yeah, right. They were originally actually going to do it as a needle drop soundtrack. In other words, whenever they needed a piece of music, they just licensed something. Right. Uh, and then somebody at the network who knew about us said, you know what, these guys can do any style convincingly, so just get them. Yeah, very cool. So that was nice. And it helps that, um, you know, I come from a jazz background and I'm a keyboard player and my partner comes from a rock background and he's a guitar player. I mean, we did a Van Halen knockoff this week. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I own a uh, audio post-production studio, and, and I, of course, I have a nine-year-old son that loves to watch, you know, these Nickelodeon shows and Cartoon Network stuff. And whenever I sit down and watch those those shows with him, I always think to myself, I would love to do sound design for one of these cartoons because it's just nonstop, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, <laughs> just, that's the thing. It's like a whole different job description <laughs> from, you know, like if you were... If you're doing post for 24 or something where it's this universe and it has to have this kind of consistency, it's almost like with a cartoon, the less consistent it is, the better. You, know, yeah. you want to just keep it shocking and, and wacky and moving forward. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, we we do have a lot of things. It's fun. Yeah, very cool. It sure beats working. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, tell us, as you work as, as, as a keyboardist, Don, um, you've played with some actually pretty heavy hitters, Chuck Berry, Ron Sexsmith, and, and uh, didn't you do a stint or are currently working on with Mark Jordan? Yeah, I actually did a stint um, as Mark's piano player mm-hmm. uh, when his guy, great jazz musician from Toronto here, Dave Restivo, moved out to the East Coast to teach for a few years. So I ended up getting the gig and doing gigs with him. And then we started writing together, which turned out to be more of a long-term thing. And uh, we still do that now and then. And uh, he ended up co-writing one tune for my album. And, you know, we've uh, I produced a single for him. And, uh, you know, we've pitched tunes to people over the years. Uh, we wrote something for Jason Mraz that I think got close to the finish line a few years ago, but didn't get on the record. That's the way the cookie crumbles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Mark's a guy. That's sort of one of those pinch-me collaborations because I've been a fan of his since I was a teenager. Oh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. you know, he made those great records for Warner in the late 70s mm-hmm. with uh, 
Jake Graydon and Gary Katz. That's right. Yeah. Well, let's dive into Monkey House. And, uh, yeah. You know, the name of the band is derived from uh, a Kurt Vonnegut collection of short stories called Welcome to the Monkey House. And... Uh, which I don't know if you know this, by the way, but Eddie and I are in Indianapolis, and Kurt Vonnegut is actually an Indianapolis native. <laughs> and uh, I did know that. Yeah. <laughs> How was this an inspiration, though, for the band's name? Well, I mean, I'm I'm just a freak for Vonnegut. I literally have everything he's ever written yeah. on my bookshelf, and um, always was. I mean, the first one of his I read, I think, was Breakfast of Champions, which mm-hmm. was maybe new at the time, maybe '74, '75, yeah. when I was a kid, and. Um, the reason I even was came up with a, a band name for this project was that nobody can spell my last name, <laughs> so I would say it. You know, you look, just, you know, you look at it on a piece of paper and go, "Yeah, can you, what is this?" Yeah, I got people in my own family. I'm not sure can spell it, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So I, I I thought better to give it a a, a name that. Maybe has a little mystery to it. Uh, Easy to spell. That way, <laughs> it's not so much me as a solo artist with my face on the album cover. And I thought, I just thought having a name for it, uh, Alice Steely Dan, where even if it's a studio project and I'm, it's basically my vision, having a band name um, takes the emphasis off of kind of the cult of personality and, and just puts it right on the music. Right, yeah. And you can age more gracefully, too, if you're not on the album cover. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, cause this, this, the project started uh, 20 years ago this year. So, um, you know, I, I may have, I will not confirm or deny, but I may have more gray hair. <laughs> well, I'm just happy you didn't name your band in the same fashion that Steely Dan named their band after. Yeah, although by... <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, the backstory to to my name is not quite as um, uh, NC-17. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Well, tell you what, let's take a break, and I want to check out a track from the album Headquarters, and um, which, of course, is the latest release uh, from Monkey House and our guest today, Don Brightup. And this is a track called Checkpoint Charlie. So take 
Hey, can you introduce us uh, quickly to the band members and who you have contributing, uh, whether instrumental or vocalist, to Monkey House? Sure. Um, well, I'm the singer and the piano player, and um, I was really adamant this time around for the new record, Headquarters, that I would have a steady rhythm section for all the tunes. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got Mark Kelso playing drums, and he's just a phenomenal pro that yeah. I've for years. Mm-hmm. and. He's done all kinds of big stuff. He's played with um, Gino Vanelli. Absolutely. A lot of uh, world-class Latin artists, and he's a busy studio guy and all that. And also an instructor at um, Humber College here in Toronto, which has sort of a Berkeley-esque uh, applied music program. Mm-hmm. And also from that program is uh, my bass player, Pat Kilbride, who's just a, just a frightening musician. He... he you know, he can read anything. He could sort of splatter some paint on the wall and he decode it and turn it into music. Yeah. And, uh, equally good upright and electric bass player. Hmm. And then, uh, again, true to the Steely Dan model, I have a small army of guitar players, including Drew Zing. That's right. Used, um, did a stint with Steely Dan as mm-hmm. doing Boss Gags now. Exactly, sure. Because um, he's moved west. Yep. And then a couple of um, what we think of as our Canadian... Uh, rock guitar gods up here, Kim Mitchell and Rick Emmett. Yeah. And then, you know, the rest of them, mainly contemporaries of mine, sort of from my generation, who uh, I've worked with in various combinations over the years, either playing on other people's records or touring with people or, you know, being in bands. The horn section, which is at least six horns deep on most of the new stuff. Wow, um, beautiful stuff. Includes... Um, a lot of guys who've been on previous records of mine, um, but all of whom are, um, you know, great jazz players, but also seasoned studio guys and, you know, do theatrical stuff and, and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, my my hired uh, gun secret weapon guest star was Michael Lenhart, who played on uh, yeah. 
face in the middle. And Michael is, uh, I know Michael from some of our Bright Up Brothers stuff in New York City over the years. So, you know, the lineup of this band, this project, is always morphing uh, constantly. And, you know, even the live version of the band that's going to do some dates uh, this year will be some people from the record, but maybe some people who aren't on it. Um, that will have more to do with uh, who wants to take a road trip to uh, wherever the gigs are. Well, tell us. I, I'm curious now, is it going to be my next question, is where are, are you planning to play? Is it primarily Canadian dates, or are you going to dip down into the States and try to do some gigs down here? No, the, yeah, the, not not primarily Canadian. I think we'll, we'll hit the usual spots up here where I, you know, either know people in the industry who can book me into an appropriate club uh-huh. or venue, uh, which would be, you know, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I know a lot of people in New York, um, so I fully expect that there'll be um, live dates there. And other stuff that's in the works would be uh, L.A., New Orleans, Boston. So we're just at the beginning of nibbling around you know, trying to string some gigs together so that it makes sense. Because technically this record, although it's been out on iTunes uh, for about two months and change now, it, the wide release of it, the international release of it, doesn't happen until the beginning of April. So, okay. So it's just going out to radio uh, next week, and the publicity is about to start for it, too. Very cool. Well, we're, we're here to help, and, and we'll have to keep in touch, you know, especially with these dates, because I know there's a lot of people that are going to want to come and catch your live shows. No doubt. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we sound great live. Like, we've done it live in the past with anywhere from, a, I guess, a five to a ten-piece version of the band, depending on, uh, you know, how big the stages were and how much money there was going to be at the end of the night. Sure. You've done a series of, of albums, I believe, four, including that, uh, including Headquarters. Um, but how does your first album, such as Welcome, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, is it Welcome to the Club? Yeah. Yeah, that was the uh, first one. Yeah. Yeah, how, how did that uh, differ from, you know, your second project, your true winter project? Uh, uh, I took We took a good little listen at, at Welcome to the Club, and you know, we noticed that there's a spread of years between the deliveries of both projects. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's sort of par for the course when you, um, I guess when you have a, a project like Monkey House, which is, uh-huh. uh, although it's the thing that I do that's closest to my heart, it's hard to get it to the top of your list of things to do sometimes when you're, as I described, when you're into other bands and mm-hmm. tours and, and uh, projects. So the first album actually came about when I was kind of the in-house uh, guy at a one of the bigger studios up here called Marigold. And, um, you know, people would come through and people would bring album projects in and they were looking for original tunes and... Mm-hmm. Um, actually, similar now that I think of it to the experience uh, Becker and Fagan had when they were staff writers for Dunhill, where they were, you know, trying to come up with catchy little ditties for the grassroots and, yeah. and uh, these pop acts. I would typically, you know, I did get a bunch of tunes cut by various people, but sometimes I would bring something in and they'd go, "Well, wh- what's that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> that has too many chords." And I, I was, uh, you know, me being, my taste would be, what do you mean I took half the chords out already? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, so I ended up with, I guess, a pile of original music. 
with me having sung the demos of it that just, I guess, appeared to be too quirky or individual or jazzy or whatever it was, some combination of that, to uh, enable it to be good general usage mainstream pop songs yeah. pitched to people. Mm-hmm. And finally... Um, the guy uh, who owned the studio, who was a record producer, said, you know, why don't you just uh, cut this yourself? It seems like it's that makes the most sense. And and so I did. And we were on a bit of a shoestring budget the first time, which is why, uh, if you listen to that record, there's a lot more kind of programming and, yeah, you know, drum loops and synth sounds and all that than there were on subsequent Monkey House albums. But, uh, I mean, it has a kind of identity because of that. It, it does sound like it was made in the 90s, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Luckily, we ended up with a big fan of that record who was an executive for um, Aquarius Records in Montreal who were um, distributed by Capital at the time. And they, they were, you know, they'd had some success over the years with people like um, Sash Jordan and Maple Wine and Corey Hart as well. Oh, wow. But, Aquarius artists that kind of moved on to uh, the U.S. and beyond. Mm-hmm. So they licensed the first record, and it and it had the full weight of kind of Capitol's promotional and radio tracking muscle behind it, and um, it came out of the gate actually pretty strong. And you know we had a couple of top twenties in Canada, and ended up doing a lot of live dates around that first record and. Yeah, so I mean, it was more than enough attention to kind of indicate that there was an audience mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. for the project. And uh, but as you say, the the next record, which was True Winter, was not out for another I guess, five years or something after that. Yeah, I mean, True Winter actually had a I mean, an immense amount of, of of tracks on it. I, I counted fifteen, I believe, that you delivered on that project. Yeah, I, I know, mean that's well, a lot of music. I mean, which leads me if to my. You're ne- saying I'm not, I don't know when to stop. You <laughs> wouldn't be the first. <laughs> I mean that's a lot of music. You know, which leads me to my question of, you know, when you write, um, do you? I mean, when you get the chance, you know, every five or six years to go back to Monkey House and deliver a project, you know, how much music have you accumulated, and how often, and how does that relate as to your writing habits? How often do you get to sit down and write? You know. Well, I've sort of got my life set up so that I'm almost have no choice other than to be writing constantly mm-hmm. for various purposes. Um, but occasionally, you know, I'll write something just for the sake of writing it and think, yeah, that one's going to go in the monkey house pile because yeah. <laughs> it just sounds like that's where it belongs. And so I kind of, you know, I'll demo it up and keep it on the short list for whenever the next record is. And, um, yeah, I mean, so the new the new album Headquarters has 14 tracks on it, and they range in age from stuff that was written just, you know, while we were making the record to maybe five, six, seven years before that. Wow. Things that I've been just thinking, okay, that's, yeah, it sounds like it could uh, be part of whatever the next Monkey House album is. <laughs> Obviously, we talked about um, Welcome to the Club, which was released in 92, uh, True Winter, which was released in 98, and in 2005, you, you released um, Big Money, Singles, Remasters, and Rarities, and tell us a little bit about that project and where that, those tracks came from. Yeah, well, some of those tracks were culled from the first two albums, one of which by 2005 had actually gone out of print, and so I was getting requests from people for songs from Welcome to the Club, and that was before iTunes was 
you know, really fully established as the delivery system for digital music. I mean, it existed, but it was not, you know, sort of the whole game yet. Right. And so I thought I had recently reacquired all those masters from the two labels that had licensed the first two albums. So I had all my publishing back and the masters. Mm-hmm. So I went back and... um some of the things that had been edited for the first couple of albums, I put the old chunks back in, so mm-hmm. some of those tracks ended up longer than they had originally been, and in a couple of cases, I really stripped them down and um, kept some of the architecture of the original versions of the song and you know, added fresh guitar tracks and vocal tracks and other overdubs. And then I think I wrote, I'm going to say it was either four or five brand new tunes for that record that I think maybe if you listen to them uh, chronologically, you would see that they're sort of pointing toward more like what the band sounds like now, Mm -hmm. you know, harmonically and and, uh, maybe having a little, maybe a little more maturity in terms of leaving more space and uh, letting the groups speak for themselves and and maybe uh, when there's an improvised solo, letting it go a little longer than I might have in the past. <laughs> you know? yeah. it's, it's almost heartbreaking sometimes. You get a, a great player in, and every take's great. And you think, why am I just giving these guys eight bars? I mean, this guy should be blowing up across the whole tune. And you can't do that, really, if, you, if you're thinking of it as a pop record. But, uh, again, if you came of age in the 70s or early 80s or whatever, you... you are used to a world where people were allowed to take a solo on a pop record. I mean, that tradition doesn't really exist so much now. Sure. I mean, even guitar solos are pretty much unheard of on contemporary rock stuff. But uh, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, just let's take a vacation from the singer for 30 seconds or 60 seconds and let another voice go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's, you know, we've been talking a little bit of in and out with uh, about your latest release, Headquarters, which by, by um, you know, in the truth is that we've been sort of devouring that for the, for the past few days and, and uh-huh. e- eating it up. And, and it's, it really is a compilation of, of some amazing songs you put together, Don. In fact, at the top of the first song, Checkpoint Charlie, it's, um, it leads off. It's, it's got a really nice organic feel, lots of roads. Um, can you tell me who does the background vocals on that uh, part, the female vocals? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a girl um, from Montreal named Julie Crochetier. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have our good French accents up here in Toronto. Exactly. Beautiful, <laughs> man. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she was part of um, sort of a predecessor to uh, American Idol, Canadian Idol, that, those shows. Mm-hmm. And it was called, I think, Pop Star. Okay. Or there was one in the U.S. also, mm-hmm. an equivalent, and she she was one of this quartet of girls who became this kind of instant pop group, and they hung they hung in for a couple of years and then uh, kind of went their separate ways as these patched together reality show things tend to do. I mean, it's sort of hard to make a band out of four people who just happen to enter the same contest. Yeah. So she moved to Toronto, and as I got to know more about her, she um, revealed herself to be a, an excellent songwriter, uh, keyboard player, and especially singer in her own right. And um, 
I've written with her over the years and, and done gigs with her, and uh, she just seemed like the right voice. You know, Checkpoint Charlie was one of those tunes where, uh, as a writer, it's nice to not be hemmed in by your own vocal range, and definitely because that tune wanted to be high. And I thought, you know, I could sing the whole thing in falsetto, or I could... Uh, get a woman in to do it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what I ended up doing. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a very unselfish decision to bring somebody in, but if you, you know, like you said, if the song requires it to be a little higher, I guess she, she delivered a really nice, uh, very clean performance, and it, she worked out just fine. You know, one thing that I like about Checkpoint Charlie, and as a keyboard player myself, I'm, I'm a huge uh, bass line fan. I mean, when it comes down to neat portions and of, of Moog bass synth lines, yeah. Uh, the chorus line in uh, in Checkpoint Charlie actually added some really nice funky <laughs> bass lines that reminded me a lot of Jeff Lorber or David Gamson type of work and and uh, I mean you had a, a very nice touch on the on the Moog bass so compliments. Oh, to that. thanks. Yeah, yeah well, uh, well, Gamson, big fan, yeah. huge fan. Um, yeah, and and oddly, funny you would mention that because that was the very first thing that was written for that song. I just had that little line. You know, probably recorded into a cassette recorder off piano or something, just to mm-hmm. make a note of it. And I always thought, yeah, I got to do something with that. And then uh, once I started writing, you know, putting a little more energy into writing for mm-hmm. a new record, I made that the seed of that song. And the reason it's the first track on the record is not necessarily that I think it's the most commercial, but like if it's the first Monkey House song you hear, you yeah. can pretty much know what we're about just from that one tune. Yeah, yeah. that's a good it's reason. got all the elements. Well, moving on to actually to another track, the one I'm interested in is uh, Where's Mantis, Ivar. Yeah. And, it, and it's wonderfully written and wonderfully arranged, but you know, you got, you got to tell us who is this Mantis, Ivar. <laughs> and I got to, this is so funny because I've been playing this song, I mean, playing this album in my car and my son, who's nine, uh, he, he loves yeah. the song. He, he asks me all the time, he goes, Dad, what are they saying? I mean, who, who is Mantis, Ivar? And I said, you know what? I'll ask Don the next time I talk to him. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. It's, uh, and it's not the first time, obviously, I've been asked that. So, usually it's more along the lines of, who the hell is this guy? Who is this? So this answer is for They're Hold angry, you know? <laughs> How dare you write this whole song about this person I've never heard of with the weird hippie name. Yeah, that's right. But uh, he is a real guy. Okay. Um, I've been... Uh, writing songs with my brother, who's a lyricist, he's based in New York City, pretty steadily for about 12, 15 years or something now. And um, we do a thing at the public theater, uh, Joe's Pub, uh, there at least once a year where we just get a kind of a house rhythm section. Yeah. And then maybe 10 or 12 singers to come in and do our stuff. And over the years, we've had some real, you know, Carolyn Lenhart's done it and Catherine Russell. and. Uh-huh. A lot of people from the theater world down there, too. But the, the very first one we did was actually at the Canadian consulate in Manhattan. And my brother knew this guy, Mantis Ivar, who at the time was uh, an A&R guy for Blue Note Records. He was working for Bruce Lundball around the time when they were flying high because they had just hit the jackpot with Nora Jones. Okay. And he had said he would come and check out our show. So that was exciting. So all night... You know, as the evening progressed, I kept saying to my brother, where's Mantis Ivar? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, obviously it's it's a distinctive sounding name, so sure. 
it's it's almost just fun to say that. <laughs> but you know, I really wanted to know where is this guy? You know, he's from Blue Note. Like, and I hope he's here because at the time, I mean, I know him now, but I didn't know what he looked like even then. <laughs> and finally, I think about the tenth time I asked Jeff, my brother, that question: "Where's Mantis Evar?" He took out his notebook and said, "Okay, we're going to write a song." <laughs> you know, that's just such a quirky, weird question that I have to write that down and turn it into a lyric. So he actually wrote the full lyric to that tune before it had any music. And, you know, we finished the tune, and then we, we played it for Mantis, who by then we knew better. And uh, he's just tickled pink. <laughs> so, and he works for, um, he helped create Indaba Music. Um, right, okay. Uh, yeah, do you guys know about that? It's, uh, briefly, I know that he's performed with Stevie Ray Vaughan. I, that's... Yeah, I mean, he started as a guitar player. Okay. Um, but Indaba Music is this website that sort of facilitates musicians collaborating globally. Okay. You know, so you might um, have a bed track and, and some guy from Cape Town or something throws a guitar solo on it and then, you know, it bounces around to somebody else. And, Holy cow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really kind of space age. Almost like a... Um, Progressive composition type of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really, and you know, they do all kinds of music. It's you know, indie rock and dance music and jazz and whatever people want to do. But they're kind of the um, the matrix that that enables all that stuff. And uh, interestingly, I just heard from him um, about two weeks ago because his company is uh, heavily involved in South by Southwest, which is coming up, and they're doing a promotion. There's some kind of Thing they're doing down there with the GPS in people's iPhones can identify where various people at the conference are going to be. And so the Endowment Music pr- promotion is actually called Where's Mantis Evo? Yeah, so, you know, you can you go to that app or, or um, I'm not sure if it's an app or even just a link to a website, but you go to that and it will tell you if you're in the building where he actually is. That's awesome. But That's the upside awesome. for me is that if anyone dials that up. Yeah. The uh the they will experience uh the song because it's a bit basically going to be playing on it. That's cool. The whole time, so. That's, <laughs> that's really, really cool. Yeah, I mean, you know, any expo- any exposure, that's that's great. No doubt. <laughs> From the album Headquarters, this is Where's Mantis Evar? From our guest today, Don Brightup, and the band Monkey House on Inside Music Cast. Here I'm standing on the corner, tragedy and vine. A lonely, worn out mourner, stumping for the sign. My dog just died. I haven't cried till now. I spent the last GW I could borrow. Trying to get to Gotham by tomorrow I should learn how to drive But I'm barely alive And there's only one guy I know Passing me a cigar 
girl's back in New York Her brother says I'm shite We're getting hitched Your love's a bitch And how She says we'll do it One of these Decembers And I'm the dad As far as she remembers I should learn how to drive But I'm barely alive And there's only one guy I know Another track uh, on headquarters that I love is December Girls. Tell us about the conception of this track and the inspiration uh, for the lyrics on this one. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, the inspiration for that track is this blonde girl with a red winter coat, and who knows where she is now. <laughs> and she, she'll never know that song was inspired by her. But uh, uh, and she's yeah, she's deep in the, in my past. But I guess uh, the title comes from it's a bit of a nod to uh, September Girls, which is a big star yeah. song mm-hmm. from the seventies. Uh, but I guess um, what I said about it in the liner notes was if you're um, Canadian the chances are very high that you had your first kiss while uh, wearing a hat and scarf and standing in snow. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's sort of around that, just sort of, uh, you know, uh, romantic uh, nights while you're freezing your ass off. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I took it as an opportunity to write more of a maybe slightly sweeter uh, pop melody. Mm Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the the middle section of that, where there's this, this sort of counterpoint between the horn section and uh, and this scat singer Jenny Laws, who's now in LA and, and contributed that just that one section of that one tune, it might be my favorite stretch of music on the whole record. Mm-hmm. You know, there's another track, Faith in the Middle, which is I was listening to that again, uh, driving here to the studio, and um, you know, for me, this is a perfect example of what the adage less is more is all totally about musically <laughs> you know it's uh it's from a musical and vocal perspective um it's just it's just it's just very pure uh, the thing i like about this is that you even threw in a simple half up key change and i'm like i think that's the only key change in this whole album but it was so perfect you know uh tell us a little bit about faith in the middle it's a uh, it's a very nice rhythmic tune thank you um yeah, and it really is all about the space. Like uh, that's that's one case where the process of mixing that song was all about clawing stuff away from it, and just muting things and taking things out, or or you know just leaving something in for rather than for the whole length of the tune, just taking a, a guitar part and saying, well, that's it, just belongs really in that one spot. Yeah. Um, and the, you know the concept of the tune is that you know you guys live in a very polarized country uh, at the moment, and so I think a little faith in the middle or the center you know, would be a good thing, uh, because uh, out of the extremes, there's no uh, there's no basis for conversation or progress or collaboration or whatever. And That's so very true. the lyric, which is actually kind of obtuse and maybe a little hard to decipher uh, when you first hear it, is really all themed around that, like what's what's the sweet spot what's the mm-hmm. the uh the compromise the middle area where you know we can get this to make sense to everybody yeah but yeah the funny you mentioned the modulation because what happened with that was I just enjoy the groove of that song so much that I didn't want to do what you usually do for a bridge, which is change it up yeah I didn't want to change it up I just wanted that same flow to be going for the whole track and so I thought um I just bump it up a half step and then, you know, work my way back down a half step when the vocal yeah. comes back in. Yeah. Very that nice. might be enough of a, uh, just a color change. Yeah. That I don't have to break the groove. Yeah. It didn't need any more than that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased with the way that one came out. Yeah. Um, in fact, we're going to, uh, we're working on a video for that tune right now. Oh, cool. Very cool. Let's take another quick break, and I want to check out uh, this track, Faith in the Middle, 
from our guest today, Don Brightup, and his band, Monkey House.
faith in the middle. Let's talk about the engineering and recording. Let's get a little bit technical. A lot of our listeners are, are very technical people. So let, let us know about your studio a little bit. Uh, you know, what, what uh, for instance, with on Faith in the Middle, what kind of uh, equipment are you using? What kind of a soundboard? Uh, what kind of a... Uh, tell us a little bit about your... The yeah, well, side. I only wish that, that this record was made uh, at my studio. Like, it was made at... Uh, a much bigger studio than I could contemplate mm-hmm. um, having myself. Um, and the engineer is a, one of the best guys up here. He's, he's been up for the Juno Award, for, which is like the Canadian Grammy, for um, uh, engineering a bunch of times and has won it. And has worked with uh, all kinds of people that you guys would have heard of in the jazz realm and the pop realm. Yeah. But he's he's just got such great ears and such... Uh, high standards, and um, you know, started as a violinist and a guitar player himself. So, his, his, in terms of uh, pitch, he's got better ears than a lot of musicians have. So, he's he's just a pleasure to work with. He, we we've been doing so many projects together that I don't need to explain much to him, and uh, stuff just moves forward. Uh, the only part that's weird when you're producing your own record is when you're doing vocals and you're no longer in the control room, and you've got to have somebody that you really, really trust on the other side of the glass, and that was John. I mean, the truth is, you know, he, in some respects, he sort of co-produced this record, mm-hmm. just because he, um, you know, he could, he's a guy who, unlike a lot of engineers, can actually give you a, a solid opinion about the form of the song, or, yeah. you know, a backup vocal part, or, you know, what needs to happen next, and, and that kind of thing. And that mix I was talking about on Faith in the Middle, where we were clawing stuff away from it to create space, you know, full marks to him on that one, because uh, he was maybe braver than I was in terms of uh, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. removing data from the, uh, the picture to, mm-hmm. to create, you know, the way it came out in the end. But in terms of gear, I mean, it's a bit, you know, it's a big space. You could put a, a big band or a small orchestra in there, and there's isolation all over the place. And they the piano is a Yamaha C7, and he's using um, the big Pro Tools control surface for, for a board. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, every microphone in the world to choose from. And we were, you know, part of our uh, mission statement with this thing was, let's make sure even if it's uh, a synth part or whatever, let's make sure that it, it went through an amplifier, moved some air, you know, we stuck a mic in front of it and, and uh, you know, had it moving molecules and sounding like music as opposed yeah. to just uh, right. bringing in data from, from a pre-production session and copying it into a Pro Tools session. And, and for that reason, too, we, there was, I think, either no or almost no um, keyboard tracks that were done kind of inside a, a writing program like Logic or whatever. We just... Um, we did live clav, live organ, live piano, live Rhodes, live Wurlitzer. Nice. Yeah, and um, I did all those as overdubs because uh, I didn't want to be distracted while I was listening to the drum and bass yeah. um, mm-hmm. sessions. I just wanted to make sure that the foundation was there and not get hung up on uh, what I was playing at the time. 
Very cool. Well, we're certainly impressed with headquarters. Um, it was Inside Music Cast correspondent Brian Pearson who turned me on to uh, Monkey House and, and uh, started listening to the tracks, and, and I was blown away. So that's what Ed, Eddie mentioned earlier. It's that we, we've got to get Don on the show. No doubt, no doubt, <laughs> because no yeah, well, that's truly, great. I mean, Brian, you know, I just need uh, um, 50,000 more Brians, and I'm going to be famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's what you need when you're doing something like this that's considered niche music mm-hmm. you got to have champions and you got to have people who want to tell their friends about it and and help you spread the word i got a facebook message from one of the bassists in the toronto symphony the other day who said that he had downloaded the, the album from itunes and and was just flipping out over it and saying it's the, you know he hasn't been this excited about a record in 20 years or something and he wants to buy 10 copies of media that's nice you know, that's the kind of uh, musical end user that, that you hope for. Well, I think that's the, the listener base here on Inside Music Cast because, uh, you know, so much of who we talk to uh, have been some of the great, like we mentioned, uh, studio musicians of the past, guys who have played on all of this stuff. I mean, we I can't count how many guys we've had on the show that have actually performed with Steely Dan, probably a dozen or more. So, I yeah. mean, it, we, we do have that, well, that kind of... Those guys are royalty as far as I'm concerned. I mean, those are the unsung... <laughs> yeah. Uh, heroes of of uh, all that great music, you exactly. Know, guys that you only know about if you if you were uh, a bit of a music nerd and what read your liner notes over. And, You're right. Well, I've got a couple more questions, but before we move on to this sure. n- this other topic, real quick, um, where can if if somebody's interested in getting headquarters? I know you can get it on iTunes, but is there going to be a physical CD release at some point? Did you say April? Maybe. Yeah, um, early April it comes out on Alma Records, which is a jazz imprint here in Toronto, which okay. is distributed by Universal in Canada and distributed by Warner in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it actually has some good old-fashioned uh, distribution. Cool. There is already a run of uh, physical CDs. Um, the only way to get one of those uh, right now is directly from me. <laughs> you know, the, the best way to do it, actually, is to just, uh, if people are on Facebook, um, just look for me on Facebook yeah, and nice. send me a message. And that's the way it's been happening so far, because for a little while, the uh, you couldn't get it on the European iTunes store. It was only in North America. Okay. And so I ended up getting orders from people in all over the place, France, yeah. Italy, Germany, Sweden, UK. Um, so I have been shipping out copies that way. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the official CD release will be uh, in the spring. Awesome. Well, I want to switch gears real quick. We're winding up. We're getting close to the end of the show. And this next section that we're about to talk about here, we could probably devote an entire show to. But but this is about, you know, outside of music, you've also written a few books. And one of which which caught our attention is the Continuum 33 and a Third uh, publication of Asia. And tell us, you know, I was just curious about how you got involved uh, in writing the, in publishing this book. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I'm actually not the publisher. Um, well, yeah, right, Continuum is, but... I, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know if you guys know about that series. Um, I, I'm just being a, you know, music fan and, and uh, an avid reader, was really into that series because the, the concept is that they do one of these little paperback books about just one album. Right. Either a rock record, usually a rock, but sometimes a soul mm-hmm. album. And they've done everything from, you know, Dusty Springfield to Led Zeppelin to The Beatles to... Uh, Marvin Gaye, uh, Stevie Wonder, blah, blah, blah. And uh, 
so they had done a few rounds of these, and I actually just, um, because I'm a, um, either take your pick, I'm either ballsy or reckless, I just cold called the series editor and said, sort of giving him shit for not doing his deal again. But <laughs> <laughs> As you should have. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, he said, well, uh, are you a writer? And I said, yes, I am. And I've written a couple of other books, and I've done a lot of newspaper stuff, and he said, well, the next time I'm taking pictures on uh, books for this series, um, you, why don't you pitch me in a Steely Dan book? So he invited me to do that maybe a, a year later or something like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I wrote up a proposal for a book on Asia and uh, ended up being, I think, one of the either four or six they approved for that round. And so at that point, it was just a great excuse to look up as many of those amazing players from that record as I could and most importantly uh, sit down with um, uh, Donald Fagan, my hero, and uh, talk about the uh, just the nuts and bolts of making that record yeah. and writing it. Yeah. And so I had, really had to nag Irving Azoff's office for a few months before that finally happened, but <laughs> <laughs> eventually I got uh, invited to talk to him and I met him um, in his uh, writing studio, which is uh, on the Upper East Side of New York. And uh, I think we had originally booked that he would talk to me for an hour, but it ended up being, I guess, maybe closer to three, something like that. Wow. And he was just couldn't have been more welcoming and, and into talking about everything. Well, this book literally goes into, it dives in really deep. Uh, it's... You know, you cover everything in a song. It's very technical from a musical perspective, and because you actually spend time breaking down time signatures, the you know the structures of the songs, the you know the theory, the chord progressions. I mean, did you want to go initially deep that deep into this song, and what was your goal? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I thought about it. Um, I thought, you know, how deep can I go into the technical end of it without alienating kind of a casual reader. Mm-hmm. What I ended up deciding was you just this isn't music you can talk about without addressing that stuff. Yeah. It's not Bob Dylan, it's not the Rolling Stones. I mean part of the identity of this music is that it's it's a little complex. Right. You know? So I I don't think you can uh I think if you wrote about it without talking about that stuff you'd be kind of skirting the mm-hmm. the issue in a way. Mhm. Um, but, you know, I've heard from the odd person that, well, I didn't really understand the chapter on chord progressions. And, and I said, yeah, but, well, that chapter is only seven pages long, so you can always skip that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I did, you know, spend a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, the players on the record and, uh, you know, the lyrics and the sessions and the, the backstory of some of the songs. And right. I mean, it was just a real luxury to, to have Fagan in first person talking to me about that stuff because he just, he's not generally inclined to do that. So there, there wasn't that much out there um, from magazines or whatever where he had actually gotten into the nitty-gritty of how, uh, how they make records. Did you have any anxiety walking into that, that session, that interview? <laughs> well, it's always <laughs> nerve-wracking when you meet one of your heroes. That's like, right. You think... Uh, <laughs> You know, I've been an admirer of this guy for decades now. Yeah. What if he's just an asshole? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, uh, he really uh, was uh, very forthcoming and uh, uh, 
great sense of humor and was making me cups of tea and being uh, a good host. So well, you, you asked uh, the right questions. Yeah, you asked the right questions. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I had the sense that, you know, he, he probably uh, was locked and loaded that if I'd come in and, and didn't know what I was talking about, I probably would have been out the door inside of 15 <laughs> minutes. But I think I, uh, I fooled him. <laughs> Stand, wow. Standing on a trap door, and, and Donald has the lever. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, I, I know. I was. I asked the anxiety question because I put myself in your shoes the first time I met Steve Lukather. Because, you know, I, I'm not starstruck. I, I own a studio, and I have celebrities and different kinds of people in the studio all the time. And I could, you know. Right. Uh, I appreciate them, but it's not like I, you know, get all whacked out over the fact that they're standing next to me. But when this first time I met Steve Lukather, I was nervous. You know, I, I, I just had like this anxiety, like, oh my God, there's this is a guy I've admired for, you know, since I was a kid, and yep. he was the most welcoming, you know, warm person. You know, the first thing he does is crack you up because he's the funniest person on earth. <laughs> yeah, that's everything I've heard about him is, is uh, along those lines. Like he's just the nicest guy on earth, and uh, won't stop laughing the whole time. You're, You're right. That's exactly. <laughs> Right. Well, God, what a sound. I mean, what yeah. a resume that guy's got. Oh, he's amazing. Well, you know, going back to Asia, though, you know, that's that's my all-time favorite album, and I'm sure it's got to be one of yours. But, like, you know, you for me both, friends. <laughs> well, for me, you know, Asia's, you know, I guess being less technical and more organic about just, you know, what you're listening to. You know, for me, Asia is an album that I can listen to, you know, at any given moment. You know, I don't have to be in a particular mood or in a certain place or with, you know, you know, it was with some music that I enjoy. You know, Asia is like my personal soundtrack, maybe along with Gaucho and maybe Toto 4. Those are like my, my top three. And uh, it's just, you know, it's, it, it's just what it is. I don't know. You, obviously, that, that's, that's your favorite album as well, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I, I agree with you 100%. It just does not seem to get stale. Uh, yeah. It doesn't matter when it comes on, um, irrespective of time or place. It just, uh, whenever I hear it, Especially on a pair of good headphones. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it just sounds as fresh as the day first day I heard it. Which interestingly, I was working my first job, uh, part time job at age sixteen when that record came out, and uh, was already a Stevie Dan freak, and was just uh, you know opening boxes and packing the latest, you know, uh, Olivia Newton John album or whatever under the under the racks. And opened a box, and there was Asia. Uh-huh. It was like uh, a movie moment. Like there should have been <laughs> bright white light streaming out of the box or something. Yeah, you know, because it really—that's that's one of those things where the, it just raises the bar. Yeah, and if you're a musician, it, it's capable of. Uh, like it's seven tunes, but it can change your life. It sure can. You know, it's funny. You're, you're, we're talking about Asia. Everybody's, you know, you sat down with, uh, you know, with with Donald and and uh, well, this past Christmas, I've got to tell you guys this. I don't know if I told you this, Rick, but uh, when I was in L.A. for a couple of weeks, I had the pleasure of, of sitting in on a, a session with Jeff Lorber at the Village. And yeah. uh, right after that session, we're about I was about ready to leave, and he says, uh, "Hey, let, let's go through a tour of the of the village here." And, and we went to Studio B, this the studio where Gary Katz was sitting recording Asia. Yeah. And I'm like, I walked in and I just bowed and I worshipped. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you know, the vibe you, was you've wild. Been to Mecca. Can I touch the hem of your garment? I got a I've got a Facebook photo of Eddie licking the studio wall. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> it was the chair, you know. <laughs> 
anyway, well, I just want to. Uh, we'll just close. I've got one more comment, and, and, and you know, I loved one particular quote in the book uh, from Fagan when <clears throat> I think it's towards the end or something when he when you know asked the age old question, you know, what is the song Asia about? Fagan responded, "About eight minutes." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is you know that's that's more the kind of answer that you would think would be in character. For him, like yeah, exactly. they, they were famous, especially when he and Walter would get interviewed at the same time. Right? <laughs> they would just, you know, make mincemeat out of the interviewer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, I, fortunately for me, I got some information that was a little harder than than that. Good for you. <laughs> well, this has been a great interview, Don. I really appreciate you spending time with us. No sweat, man. Any time, I, I, I really enjoy talking to you guys, and uh, thanks for helping you spread the word. Yeah, hey. we'll definitely keep our listeners posted. And, Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, keep us posted as well, and we'll pass along that information. No doubt. we Will do. All right, take it easy. Okay, cheers, guys. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Don Brightup for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, Max Zape, Mikhail Ingstrom, Uwe Reith, and Scott Sheriff for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>